Hi, I'm Michelle Kelly, editor of Cottage Life magazine. I'm delighted to welcome you to the final episode of season three of the Cottage Life podcast. In this episode, I get to sit down with the founder of Cottage Life, the one and only Al Zikovitz. Then we'll hear a beautiful essay written by treasured Canadian writer, Roy McGregor. This is the Cottage Life Podcast, where every day is the weekend. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. If you know me, you know I spend a lot of time outdoors. Whether I'm camping with my family or fishing in my top secret spot, there's nowhere I'd rather be than in the wild. But we all have to head home at some point. And I'm pretty sure the mosquitoes have put a homing device on me because sometimes they can be just as annoying in my backyard. So when I'm back in the city, I use the Backyard Mosquito Lamp Insect Repellent from Off. Whether I'm hosting a backyard party or gathering by the campfire with my family, the lamp provides mosquito repellency for all occasions. All I have to do is activate the repellent diffuser by lighting the candle and it releases an active ingredient that repels those pesky mosquitoes for up to six hours. Which means I might never have to head inside again. Al Zikovitz might just be the most famous cottager that you've never heard of. While he isn't instantly recognizable, his work most certainly is. Al, along with his wife, Wendela, is the founder of Cottage Life. When the couple first started the brand back in 1988, it was only a magazine. Now it's a national television network, a series of consumer shows across the country. There was even a line of housewares at one point. What was once just a magazine is now an iconic Canadian multimedia brand. Cottage Life turns 35 this year. And while Al isn't as deeply involved in the day-to-day workings as he once was, He certainly remains our fearless and beloved leader. I'm so happy to have him on the podcast today to talk to us about how this got started and to share his thoughts on how cottaging itself has changed over the last 35 years. Hi, Al. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, hi, Michelle, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, uh, Those are very kind words, and I'm not sure that I deserve it all, but thank you. Oh, please. You absolutely deserve it all. You've been a joy to work with all these years. Um, So I think where I wanted to start, there's a lot to cover here today, but what I wanted to start with is I want you to just tell me and tell all of us, what gave you the idea for starting Cottage Life? Uh, Well, it goes back to about 1984. Uh, My wife and I, we bought a cottage. We had never been cottagers in our lives. We've been to a cottage once before. And this was the second time we were at someone's cottage. Uh, the people that we went to visit wanted, would love to have had us on the lake with them. And they told mm-hmm. us there was a cottage for sale not far from where they were. And we thought, what the hell, just to save some time, let's go take a look. And we did take a look, and we just fell in love with the setting of the cottage. It's a cottage that was being built. It's a uh, uh, one season cottage basically Mm -hmm. and we just loved it before we left um i said to the owner uh, i said 
look, um, I'm really interested in the cottage. I'll tell you what, I'll pay you what you paid for the property and for material, but not for labor, uh, plus 10%. And he said, okay. And I remember us driving home and saying, you know what, I think we just bought a cottage. (laughs) 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 That's the only place we ever ever looked at. And uh, and that's how we uh, we bought a cottage. <laughs> right. I mean, we loved the place, uh, um, but it it taught me a lot. It it taught me that cottaging is an emotional thing. It's not a, mm-hmm. a, 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 a it wasn't a financial thing. It was an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, and I think we should always look at it that way. I I, I know I. I uh, was on television once on on a uh, uh, financial show, and um, the other person that was there on the show was uh, an investor. And all he could talk about is how to make a good investment in cottaging. And and I thought, no, that's the wrong approach. I think you need to look at a cottage as, as something that is part of you, something that you can be emotional with. And if you sell it and you make a profit, wonderful. What a, what mm-hmm. a great thing that is. But uh, um, don't look at it as, as a financial venture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've heard you say this many times, and I think even most people most people who read Cottage Life and talk to me, they all agree on that exact point. Although yeah. I will say that fateful weekend in 1984, fateful for all of us as it turns out, um, it's funny that you say that it wasn't a, you know, an investment because in a sense for you, it certainly was because it <laughs> informed your idea to start Cottage Life. So yes. tell me a little bit about that. Well, we bought this cottage and um, we took over in early 85, never having been a cottager. We had no idea what the hell to do. Knew nothing about the septic system. The dock that was down there was uh, some two by eights and uh, uh, two by sixes nailed on top of barrels that was wobbly. The cottage is 60, about 66 feet up in the air. Um, mm-hmm. There was a path and ladders, literally old ladders going down to the dock. <laughs> uh, Not to code. Not to code. Nothing was to code. And uh, and how do you get up and down from the dock? Um, we wanted, like other cottages, a boat. I found an old uh, uh, runabout aluminum boat, um, but it didn't have a motor. So I just went to the marina, bought a motor. It was far too powerful. Just about flipped the boat. There was no way I would put my kids in it. So what happened is I had all these questions about cottaging like what do you do up there how do you handle all of this and i come from a blue collar family you know i used to be a carpenter my dad was a carpenter and i could probably solve a number of these but then when i looked around and saw most of the cottagers around me they're white collar people they're not handy men they're they're you know how do they solve these problems and i kept thinking there is nothing for cottagers. I mean, you can go out and buy a book on how to build stairs and you could probably buy something on, I don't know, uh, how to make sure your septic system works or that you're not screwing up the environment. But, you know, the internet was not there at that time. That's right. You couldn't right. just That's Google right. things to get answers. 
and there was nothing there. And so that's where the idea of, of doing a magazine came to my mind. Uh, yeah, it's funny that you say all this because I think the thing too, and this remains true about a magazine, is that it, it I always say to people that it tells you what you don't know, you don't know. So you might not understand, you might not even realize that you need to winterize your septic system, for example. And, yes. and we're, we're there to sort of say, you know, here, you know, we're going to tell you this in the middle of August so that in the middle of September, you know exactly what to do exactly. instead of learning about what you're supposed to do in January when things are a mess. So um, I think that, you, you know, you, you obviously hit on something that, that really resonated, you know, people really did need this information. So when did you realize, I mean, what if it's a huge risk to start a business. You quit your job, you, yeah. you invested everything you had into it. So yeah. when did you sort of breathe your sigh of relief thinking, okay, maybe I've got something here? Well, I, I think just two things about it is um, um, starting in uh, 86 and mostly uh, all of 87, I spent at the cottage writing a business plan uh, mm -hmm. for a new magazine. And that business plan um basically told me how much money I would need um, to launch a new magazine. Mm -hmm. um, I showed this to my wife and uh, she helped me with that plan. And, uh, you know, the question was, wow, uh, here we were married with three children. Um, do I take this risk and start a magazine? And basically she said, look, if you try and give it all you have and fail, there's nothing to be ashamed about. But you don't want to go through the rest of your life saying, I should have done that. I wish I had done that. And I'd never, right. I never even tried. So um, I went out and uh, with my business plan, I was able to find an investor, a quiet investor uh, or a silent investor to, um, put up some money along with mine. Uh, basically, I put up the right. bulk of it. I went out and found a fantastic editor and a fantastic art director and started to put together a, um, a magazine and came out with the first issue in 88. Right. And that was Ann Vanderhoof, our founding editor, and Steve Manley That's right. was our founding art director and still involved in the magazine, still brilliant and uh, inspirational to all yes. of us. That, that work there exactly. so so okay so back to this is 88 here's my new magazine holding your breath and i know uh i mean i guess i have insider information that the advertisers were pretty pleased about this from the start but i guess the question is when did you realize that the cottagers would be pleased about it <laughs> that's interesting it's uh um we needed a minimum amount of advertising uh for this first issue to prove to ourselves that the advertisers will support this magazine. A month before closing, we had about one third of the number of advertising we need. And he said, let's motor on. And from that point on, I don't think I spent more than 10 minutes in the office every day. I was just out talking to advertisers nonstop we needed 40 pages of advertising. By the time we went to press, we had 45. The money was there. We were accepted by advertisers and off to press. Um, so the other challenge, of course, was how do you get the magazine to cottagers? Um, I have 
I have to admit, I wasn't the first one with the idea of a cottage magazine. There were other publishers out there who wanted to do a cottage magazine, but no one could figure out how to get the magazine to cottagers. You know, they thought of things of, okay, let's hire, uh, you know, uh, 300 kids to run around a bunch of lakes all over Ontario and drop them off at docks, but that didn't work. Um, you couldn't just put it on the newsstand. Um, you don't get enough distribution, but how do you get it to cottagers? And I was able to solve that problem. And uh, what I did is I contacted every municipality and cottage country throughout Ontario, and I received from them their voters list. You could buy the voters list. It's illegal to do it now. You cannot do that now, but you could then. And then what I did is I hired a couple people to go through all the voters lists and pull out everyone who owned a seasonal residence in cottage country because those are the cottagers. And it gave, their, it gave me their primary address in Toronto or Barrie or wherever they lived. So now I had the names of cottage owners in Ontario. And um, what I did is I sent 75,000 copies out every of every issue um, with a wraparound on the cover that said, um, here is a sample of a new magazine, Cottage Life. Uh, this is the only issue you will get this year. If you would like issues, it would like to receive uh, every issue. All you do is tear off this card, send it in, and... Uh, you become a subscriber, or we'll, we'll bill you later. And that's how we built our total circulation of 75,000 paid right. circulation. So again, kind of a risk, kind of like you're really going out on uh, a limb there. Risk. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. I mean, that you did that all those years ago, because as the current editor, I get letters all the time from people who say, I have been getting this magazine since the very first issue. So those people, a lot of those 75,000 people, uh, remain subscribers today. It's a very loyal audience. And I think that's actually a really important point as we sort of move to the next thing, um, which is, you know, the magazine obviously took off. Um, and then I think the thing that you did that's so brilliant, to this day, I, I sort of brag about you to people, is that I always say you were Martha Stewart before Martha Stewart because you knew um, that you couldn't just be a magazine and you had this opportunity to be more than that. So um, I guess you took that loyalty and you started a bunch of offshoots of the business. Um, and and I, I guess I wanted to know, you know, what... What was that about, and in, in, in in how did you sort of move past the printed page? That's interesting because um, the magazine took off very quickly. And shortly after that, something I always remember is going to Roots. Roots sold a lot of sweatshirts. Yes. And they had the name right across their sweatshirt. And they sold their sweatshirts for a lot of money. And I said, this is brilliant. People pay roots to advertise roots. Right. <laughs> and I thought, wow. How do I get in on you that? How, exactly. <laughs> so the first thing we did is we tried out some sweatshirts. And we started selling sweatshirts with Cottage Life 
across uh, the front. And they sold by the hundreds, thousands of orders came in for cottage life sweatshirts. My wife and I spent so many nights and weekends down in our basement packing sweatshirts into packages and shipping them off. It just and you know, and then Monday I would fill up the van to the to the roof almost with sweatshirts, mailing them out. And what that said to me is we have more than a magazine. We have a brand, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a brand called Cottage Life. And I think that is the success of Cottage Life. And when you have a brand, there are so many more things you can do. Right. And so the sweatshirts was the first thing to make me realize we had an excellent brand. And from there, we just expanded into many other areas. Right. And I mean, for those of, of the listeners who don't know, you know, we had uh, for a long time, we had a half hour television show. We, um, of course, had the merchandise. We started some books. I think that to me, the most brilliant thing that you did was start, um, you know, part of the business that remains incredibly uh, popular and lucrative, which is the Cottage Life shows, um, yes. which, which, you know, everyone who comes to the Cottage Life show at the end of uh, March and in the spring, we have we have one in Ottawa, we have one in Toronto, we have one in the fall in Toronto. Everyone who comes, it's like people are so excited. These cottagers come and they can't, you know, they can't wait to see each other just to be. They come to the Cottage Life booth, they meet me, they get meet the editors, they get all excited telling us with such excitement, like kids at Christmas waiting to open their cottages. So it's, like, I think, a big part of what the Cottage Life shows have done, uh, in addition, of course, to being a, a good business, is yes. that it's created this sense of community that's that's one of your you know that's a huge success i'm curious if you if you have anything to share about things that you tried that didn't work oh we've tried a number of things (laughs) (laughs) would you care to tell us (laughs) um our own credit card Uh, um Mm -hmm. uh, we tried it and uh it didn't work we pulled the plug after i think three years and the reason why is um uh, most of our readers at that time were a little older, and if you have a credit card, um, you tend not to change it unless you have a real You're problem. Loyal You're to loyal to your yeah. credit card. And so people didn't change to take up a cottage type credit card. If it was a young audience, people in their 20s, it, I think it would have done exceptionally well, but for us, uh, for us it didn't. Right. Live and learn. I think one of the first articles I ever wrote for Cottage Life was actually about that credit Is that card. right? It's kind of funny that you're talking. So it was, a, it was a big deal for me. It was a big deal for me personally. Uh-huh. Um, so let, let me ask you this, too. I think it's interesting is, you know, everyone thinks of Cottage Life as being, uh, you know, this big iconic Canadian brand. And, and it is that. Um I think also in the time that I've worked at Cottage Life, so many people have said to me, oh, it must be such a great place to work. Do you work at the cottage? No, I don't work at the cottage. I We work in downtown Toronto and get to the cottage as much as possible. But I do think what has really been something that most fans of the brand don't know is how much uh, the culture that you created, your work culture, has how influential it's been and how the culture you built for Cottage Life has kept staff, retained staff, and what is it really is a, a very special place to work. And 
Um, I know, you know, you've been my mentor my whole career. And, and I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about your philosophy on work and what it is to have a, a small business, a, a, an entrepreneurial business, and how you create a successful um, culture around that. You've been so good at it. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, um, when I hire people, I don't want someone who's just looking for a job. I want someone who wants to work at cottage life. I want right. someone who loves what they see and wants to be part of it. That is really important uh, to me. The other thing I tell everybody is, look, uh, so life is broken up uh, then into two parts. Half the time you're working and half the time um, you have your own free time. That time that you're working if you're not enjoying it then by god get another job <laughs> do something right, else right. don't waste half your life you should enjoy it and i think the culture within cottage life is i've always thought of myself as an employee probably more often than i thought of myself as an owner uh, operator um I wouldn't ask anybody to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. And mm -hmm. I think my job was to keep people happy in the office, to enjoy life at the office. That's mm -hmm. why, I don't mm -hmm. know. I mean, as you know. Well, that's we, that's why I stuck around so long. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of it. The work is all, is in itself is very enjoyable, too, and I think that's important. I, but I also want to say... Um, just if I may permit me a little personal anecdote here is that when I started at Cottage Life, I was the receptionist. That's I answered right. the phone and Al was the big boss. You know, we used to call him the Grand Fromage. That's what, well, that's what Wendell called you. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the thing, I still say this, and I think it's really important for, for me now, I think as I manage people and for other, you know, other, other people who are managing people. There was not one question that you would not answer for me. You know, I was answering the phone. You were running a big business, and I was I was very young. I did not know what I was doing, and you never hesitated to take time to answer my questions personally, if you could. And that meant a lot to me. That really did because it taught me that I was an important part of the business, even though I was doing something that maybe other people didn't think was as important. But it also taught me that part of what makes a good business and makes people motivated to work for you is to keep them happy and make them feel valued. And I think those were the things you just did that so well. And also, I'll say, I mean, we used to joke about this when we had our own building is that you were the guy changing the light bulbs. You, you really were. You know, I would be up on a ladder changing light bulbs. And I'd say, you know, I feel like someone else should be doing this right now. And, you know, that has informed my philosophy, uh, you know, through my entire career. And, and you know, I just wanted to say, because now I have a public opportunity oh, to do uh, it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank, thank, it's been such a joy. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I, my great pleasure with cottage life was not just you know that the magazine was successful and that cottage life was successful i took tremendous uh, um, pride and, and enjoyment out of watching the staff who i mean they would come on board they may be single they get married they raise a family they buy a home and it's all 
because we gave them a great job that they love. I think we paid a a fair salary to everybody and just to watch them grow. I mean, I've always looked at staff as an extended family, not not a bunch of employees. They they really are extended family. And as you know, we had a beer fridge at the cod at the office. Uh, Anyone was or everyone was free to have a beer anytime they wanted. Just don't abuse it. And no one ever, ever did. That's I mean, right. That's the right. number of times we used to sit out on the back deck um, um, having a barbecue at, at noon. Yep. Uh, I loved having the whole staff up at my cottage every year. Um, oh, we had some fun. We, <laughs> we had fun. I don't know. Well, I think... I mean, absolutely. I agree completely. It's funny because the last question I had planned to ask you is what are you most proud of? And you just said the thing that I'm most proud of. So kind of a perfect place to wrap up today. Al, I just love chatting with you. It's so nice to see you and to to hear your perspective on things, which, you know, it's inspirational for everyone. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Right. Oh, thank you. Right. Take care. You may recall that we ended season one of the Cottage Life podcast by chatting with longtime CL contributor Roy McGregor. Roy has often written about the emotional connection that we have to our cottages, always with great insight and poignancy. His most recent essay from our special June-July anniversary issue is perhaps his most personal work for us yet, and we feel so grateful to him for sharing it. Rewriting the next chapter is read by Pedro Mendez. You see them everywhere when they're missing. A favorite coffee mug, gardening gloves, an old raincoat, that rose just about to bloom, her paddle. She's there even when she isn't. In fact, in this particular place, she's here more than anywhere else. We fell in love here at this little lake at the end of Limberlost Road. We honeymooned here 50 years ago this September. She had the jeweler inscribe a message on the inside of the rings we exchanged. You and me, buds for all times. We were going to retire at the lake, two old buds on a last great adventure. Who knew that for all times would run out so quickly? Ellen's parents built this simple cottage in the late 1960s. Camp Lake is pretty and clean with a long finger of a bay called Flossie Lake tickling into the western boundary of Algonquin Provincial Park. A lovely falls at the end of the bay delivers water clean enough to drink, and for years the family did. The water streams into Tasso Lake, then down the Big East River to Lake Vernon, where it eventually becomes the Muskoka River. No running water, no telephone, an outhouse, a dock. Ellen and her sister Jackie grew up here and then brought their own babies here. Ellen eventually inherited the cottage, dramatically improving it over the last quarter century with our beloved local builder, John Strait. An extension to hold growing grandchildren, new sheds, new docks, a telephone, a pump to send water from the lake to serve the new shower and toilet. She insisted, however, that an outhouse was still a necessity. Winter visits, summer power outages, and so she made a new one herself. I got to dig out the hole. She built the original deck as well, working a power saw while still managing four youngsters under the age of 10. She's everywhere, 
but nowhere so present as in the magnificent gardens she built by hauling massive boulders out of the bush. The kids always said she had ox blood. Our daughter Carrie called from her home in France in the spring of 2021 to say she knew what the problem was, that clearly the doctors were giving Ellen the wrong blood. Human. Never ill a day in her life, she had suddenly become dangerously anemic in the spring of her 73rd year. She fainted one morning at the kitchen table, and an ambulance rushed her to the hospital. When they did tests that discovered a dangerous growth in her abdomen, she contracted COVID-19. She never complained. The nurses fell in love with her easy laugh and smile, but she could not breathe and passed on April 13. Her family gathered around a cell phone for one last word and far from last tears. The nurse who sat with her for the final moments told us that Ellen, ever practical, first canceled her breakfast, then closed her eyes. That practical side could be breathtaking. We had, sadly, been forced to put down our much-loved 17-year-old border collie that winter and had planned to take Willow's ashes to the cottage. I think you'll be taking two boxes of ashes, Ellen said. Of course, that is what she would want. Grief is a strange animal. It can attack when you least expect it. At a family cottage, it lurks everywhere. In The Year of Magical Thinking, Joan Didion's 2005 book on the unexpected passing of her husband, she writes, I could not count the times during the average day when something would come up that I needed to tell him. This impulse did not end with his death. What ended was the possibility of response. Never had the drive up Limberlost Road felt longer than that very first visit after Ellen's passing. Son Gordon came with me, as I could not bear to go alone. It was the strangest feeling as I unlocked the door that she had last locked at Thanksgiving. Fear rising, joy spreading. Her presence was everywhere. Her absence was everything. She was down at the dock teaching children how to swim. She was at the stove creating one of her magical soup songs recipe. She was reading in the wicker chair by the window. Even the walls held her. Her paintings of the canoe, of paddles, of the high rocks where the kids, and now grandkids, could go to jump in summer. The perfect speckled trout she carved out of basswood. Her art everywhere, including her own daughter Christine, who would carry on the painting. I go down to the dock where the red Northland canoe is sitting, waiting. She paddled in the bow seat, me in stern. We have done trips from the mountains of British Columbia to the rivers of Quebec, and, of course, all through Algonquin Park. A perfect tripper, she more than carried her weight. We had our best talks while paddling. Now the only sound is my paddle slicing through the water. I didn't canoe much last summer. I intend to get back to it this year. The old tin boat of her father's is on its side. A couple of times a summer, she would have me hook up the old six-power Evinrude, and we would take the tin boat to the falls so that she could pick through the rocks that had been dislodged by winter ice and spring rush. It's a wonder we didn't sink on some of the return trips. There is hand cream by the sink. Our daughter Carrie wrote about Ellen in the Ottawa Citizen and mentioned how she always put on too much hand cream. She says, come here, I took too much, and shares it with me, rubbing her hands on mine in a silly, loving manner. There is the fireplace and the woodshed, 
and she would be telling me and son Gord to get the chainsaw and splitter and make sure the new woodshed he built, wonder where he got that gene from, is filled with good hardwood for a winter trip we might or might not take. There is no winter access, so we drive in as far as we can and haul our food and water and supplies for a kilometer, most of it uphill. She would take one of the sleds, tie the rope around her waist, and simply grind it out. Ox blood indeed. She left the cottage to our four children. The cottage has known four generations of her family. She wants more. She left plans for a bunkie that she and John had been talking about for years. We decided to go ahead with it, and this spring, Ellen's bunkie will open for grandchildren, six of them, and their friends. There will be a large window with a view of the water. Daughter Jocelyn says there has to be one of her chairs there. I could too easily see her easing into the chair with a cold drink and an ah after her first sip, after a long, hard day of work, of course. She will be here, just as her parents are forever here, if you know where to look. Her father's trolling rod is on one wall. Her mother's knitting and crochet work is on a table. Her tea cozy is still in use. This cottage was her legacy, where she came with her parents, her sister, her husband, her children, her grandchildren. Soon, there will be great-grandchildren, and they will find her here because she is on the walls, in the garden, forever in the stories of the one who always gave. Jocelyn and her family came from Calgary during the summer. Jocelyn said it was crushingly sad at first, but as the week went on, she found the cottage a comfort. It had the same effect on her as her mother's excess hand cream had on her when she was a child. We said there would be a celebration of life once the cursed pandemic came to a close, and of course, there will be, at her cottage. Only it will not be a one-day event or even a one-generation celebration. Here, the celebration of life goes on as long as she is here. Ellen had a treasured tradition at the cottage, a journal where she kept count of who visited and who did what while they were here. It is filled with love and appreciation as it became customary to ask a guest or one of the children to describe their particular visit. I gave the journal to 13-year-old grandson Fisher last August and told him to write about the fishing and the rock jumping and the neighbor's crazy bouncy lily pad. He sat scribbling for a while. I left to do something else, and when I came back, the pen was down, the journal open, and Fisher off to play. Miss you, Grandma, he had written. Rest in peace. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. You know, some cottagers are all about the view. Me? I embrace the smells. Whether it's the scent of conifers after a good rain, or the Canadian bacon in my cast iron skillet. And that's why I like to use off gentle insect repellent during my outings. This deep free formula isn't oily or greasy. You won't even know you have it on. And it's odor free, so I can enjoy every breath when I'm outdoors. So I can focus on the smells of nature without hearing the sounds of mosquitoes when I'm in the woods.
For our last reader message of the season, we've turned to someone who's been behind the scenes since the very beginning of Cottage Life. Although her name has often been on the masthead, her contribution goes far beyond any one title. You heard our founder, Al Zikovitz, refer to her earlier as the person who helped him with his business plan. It's his wife, Wendela Roberts. She's not only his co-founder, she's played a huge part in growing the brand and in creating our standout company culture. I asked her for a few thoughts about Cottage Life on this, our 35th anniversary. She answered in her trademark, authentic and funny way. Wow, 35 years, who'd have thought? We had some epic times, some hard work, some great party weekends, and so many of my colleagues became really good friends. So it's been an amazing time that has pretty much defined my life over these last decades. I guess the best part is that I have worked with my husband for all those years, and we actually happen to be still married. That's the uh, astonishing part. I'm not astonished by that at all, actually. I know from experience that Wendela is a great partner in crime. Thanks for your message and for all you've done to make Cottage Life what it is today. That's it for this episode and for this season of the Cottage Life podcast. Thanks so much for spending this time with us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I promise you that you will really enjoy reading Cottage Life magazine, which offers more of the same great content you heard today. So please consider a subscription. Podcast listeners get a special deal. You'll get six issues plus a free copy of our amazing Cottage Spaces booklet, which features our favorite cottages from 35 years of publishing. All this for just $24.95. To sign up, visit cottagelife.com slash podoffer. Since this is our last episode of the season, I wanted to take a minute to extend a huge thanks to the awesome people who worked on season three, including Marie Wayne, Alicia Vandertoet, Megan McFadden, Meredith Neufeld, Pedro Mendez, Jennifer Kingsley, Adam Holman, Matt Manouge, Laura Hepish, Jebediah Roberts, Manure Sheikh, and Rosemary Monroe. Particular thanks to our editor and sound designer, Amanda Fusco. This podcast is produced by the awesomely talented Catherine Jun. Thanks for all of your hard work this season, CJ. And me, Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock.